This week's episode is brought to you by Harvest. Harvest is a web-based time-tracking application relied on by creative teams and freelancers in over 100 countries. With Harvest, you can easily track your billable time and invoice for it too. If you're on the go, Harvest has native iPhone and Android companion apps that make it easy to track time and expenses from anywhere in the world. Try Harvest today with a 30-day free trial at getharvest.com and use coupon code TIMESAVER at checkout to get 50% off your first month billing. Welcome to the Changelog episode 0.6.6. I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Wynn Netherland. This is the Changelog. We cover what's fresh and new and open source. If you found us on iTunes, we're also on the web at thechangelog.com. We're also up on GitHub. Head to github.com slash explore. You'll find some trending repos, some feature repos from our blog, as well as the audio podcasts. And if you're on Twitter, follow Changelog Show and me, Adam Stack. And I'm Penguin, P-E-N-G-W-Y-N-N. Fun episode this week. Talk to Wayne Seguin from, I guess... Engine Yard fame as of late. Um, probably know him from RVM. Definitely using RVM. RVM is the bomb. Also talked about BDSM, not uh, what you're thinking about, but a Ruby scripting environment that's uh, on the show. I kind of asked the question if it was part homebrew, part chef, part um, RVM, and he answered indirectly yes. Yeah, so it's kind of all those things kind of mishmashed together. It's really fun. Is this the same BDSM that uh, Steve posted about two days ago? It is. One and the same. Uh, Steve's played with it a little bit, so he he did a quick post on the blog uh, last week. But it's uh, fun if you like to have your own scripting environment that's the same on your local machine and all of your uh, unices as you deploy your your codes. Gotcha. A couple of quick programming notes. Uh, We'll be in Austin, Texas uh, for Lone Star RubyConf. We'll be doing our Design Eye for the Dev Guy slash Gal all day training on Thursday August 11th, and I'll be giving a a TI talk on the 12th, so look us up if you're there. Uh, Madison RubyConf, August 18th through the 20th up in Madison, Wisconsin. Our buddy Steve Klabnik is going to be giving a talk up there, contributor to the show, uh, co-host actually on this episode as well. Also featuring uh, Scott Chacon and uh, some other friends of the show up in Madison. Good stuff. Absolutely. Fun show this week. Should we get to it? Let's do it. Chatting today with Wayne Seguin from RVM fame. Wayne, for those that don't know, why don't you introduce yourself and a little bit about who you are. My name is Wayne Seguin, and I wrote a small 8,000-line or so uh, shell scripting framework for managing uh, Ruby environments. You can find it at rvm.beginrescuen.com. And in addition to that, I've also wrote a uh, new framework for system-level shell scripting called BDSM. And that you can find at bdsm.beginrescuen.com. I also currently work uh, for a Engine Yard under the auspicious personality of Dr. Nick, who has been known to wear fairy costumes. <laughs> we've, we've had Dr. Nick on the show. Lively personality, to say the least. So what was the driver behind RVM? Some pain that you were trying to relieve? Yes, actually. Um, basically, I left Engine Yard... During my, fr- I had a, f- a f- initial run at Engine Yard. I left Engine Yard, and then I went to work for another company. And they were trying to, what they hired me for was to 
help with their infrastructure setup and deployments and all that stuff. So I came in there, and, and the, what they needed originally was they had three projects. One was on uh, JRuby, one was on 1.8, and then their new project they were starting out was on 1.9. And anyway, we had to run all three of those uh, Rubies, and there was really no nice and clean way to be able to bootstrap those three Rubies and to be able to manage their applications um, they, they needed a way to be able to uh, have their in-development environment and their CI, QA, uh, production, demo, staging, all those environments identical without having to um, go through too much pain <laughs> or time. So I wanted to learn more about shell scripting, get better at it. So I basically sat down and taught myself uh, shell scripting I uh, found the best sources for it that I could find and started learning the do's and the don'ts, the uh, all the different techniques and what it can provide, what it is. And then I uh, took that and I started iterating over uh, was primordial RVM at the time. And I got an initial uh, Ruby environment manager up and running. Back then, I called it Ruby Version Manager, but that's not quite as an apt description as Ruby Environment Manager. So I, you know, I started using it, and a week after I started, I wrote I start I wrote it over the initial version over uh, one evening, and then I iterated over it for a week. I had it working pretty decently. It would basically, you know, download, compile, install Rubies, and keep them semi isolated as a user install. And then I showed it to this guy named Peter Cooper. Who? Some some guy named Peter Cooper. Friend um, of the show. So yeah, kind of goofy, you know. But anyways, I digress. So, yeah, he uh, did a blog post about it. And then next thing I know, I had like this IRC channel and people were asking me left and right to add features to it. Or well, Actually, what they were really asking is, hey, could I do this? And I would be like, no, hold on a minute. And then I'd go, and five minutes later, be like, hey, uh, get ahead and check this out. And then it just kind of snowballed and iterated. And So was it the move to 1.9 that prompted it, or was it JRuby and RE <clears throat> and some of the other flavors? Actually, it was both 1.9 and JRuby. The, basically, they had a, a, a massive legacy, not, not exactly legacy, but they had a, an application they had written, and it was using uh, MRI 1.8. And they wanted to, they were embarking on a new application that is, uh, they were going to write it with Ruby 1.9, and a piece of it was supposed to be an ETL processor and needed to use JDBC to connect to SQL servers uh, at the time, and that that was a JRuby piece, and that's where that came in. So it was it was a new new project that they were starting out, which is now turning into their main business project, and it, it used uh, Ruby one nine and JRuby from the start. One of the big things that always lets me recommend RVM to people is that IRC channel, and uh, from personal experience and just hearing from other people, you're exceptionally good at being available and helping people out. So how do you manage to stay up for 20 hours a day and hang out on (laughs) IRC and push new features out to RVM so fast? I'm not sure I could answer that question if I tried. For the last couple weeks, I've uh, kind of been dealing with some family uh, things and uh, personal things, and so I haven't been quite as available. Uh, however, overall, yeah, for the past two years, I've been 
overly available. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone um, can begrudge you for spending time with your family after just like you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think I basically burned myself out a bit, and but but much to my happiness, um, the community has started to step in and help out and there's a lot of people on the IRC channel now that help out and even more phenomenal to me is I now have a co-conspirator uh, Michael Pepys who is uh, out of Poland has stepped in and he um, basically took took the ball and started ro- running with it and let me take a, a mental sanity slash family uh, break and he's been helping support and drive RVM forward for the past two, uh, three, four three or four weeks now. And, uh, so now that I'm kind of getting back into it again, I, you know, I can't, I can't iterate it enough that it, having someone helping on a project of this, uh, that everybody is using like this is, is just unbelievable. Before that, I had a, a few, a few quick helps here and there, a few random, um, you know, pull requests and stuff like that, but nobody that could actually knew the code base inside out, um, since uh, last year, Ruby Summer of Code, where I had uh, dedicated uh, Darcy Laycock for that entire uh, stint of the Ruby Summer of Code. Since then, I haven't really had anybody that, that you know stepped up and helped out. And Michael now is stepping up and helping out with both RVM and BDSM. And it's just amazing how much more uh, energetic I am able to get about it now. <laughs> You know, one of the powerful features of RVM are gem sets. <clears throat> There's a post by Ryan McGeary, I guess is the name, uh, talking about how, as a community, we're probably abusing gem sets for application development, and we should be using uh, the vendor everything approach. What's your take on gem sets and when they're useful? Um, well, personally, I use gem sets on every project. I bundle, I vendor nothing. I um, tend to, I do firmly believe in complete and utter isolation of an application. Uh, what I do is I do use gem sets to do that. And I uh, basically, I obliterate, if I'm deploying to a server, I, you know, you can just start clean or obliterate a gem set. And, you know, if you're using bundler or isolate or something like that, you can, or RVM uh, gem sets themselves, have a gem set import feature and export feature. And, you can use the, any of those things to bootstrap the, exactly the gems you need for your application. And, yeah, um, the one exception I take to the vendor nothing is I do v- vendor things when I have to deploy to a system that's insanely locked down behind firewalls such that, you know, there is no actual good reason for them to be that locked down. However, they do it anyways. So anytime I deal with people like that, I uh, tend to, to actually bundle things, but I don't actually bundle them in the application. I like to keep my application's code bases lean and clean. Uh, so I have another way that I propagate uh, bundled uh, gem set directories and stuff like that. A big piece of the workflow is how Bundler works together with RVM. How much integration have... have you done with Yehuda and how he designed Bundler to get those two to play nice? <clears throat> Originally, there was a lot of uh, back and forth with Yehuda and I, and we got a lot of the kinks worked out right around Bundler 1.0 and shortly thereafter 1.0 point, you know, a lot of iterations. And 
they started to play nice together, and then sometime recently they did, uh, things started to diverge a little bit again. Uh, so what I've requested, well, actually, I talked with uh, Indirect about. And apologies, I don't know, I don't remember his, his actual name. I, I deal with him mostly on IRC and Twitter, so <laughs> I do that all the time. So yeah, yeah. On, it, <laughs> if Steve Klabnik, I think it's Twitter Andre handle was Steve Klabnik, I wouldn't know who he was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pe- people have trouble uh, remembering remember my name as well. So he, basically, we went back and forth for the brief discussion, and we we figured out a way to do it. And uh, actually, just yesterday or the day before, uh, Yehuda popped in my channel and asked me about my references to that discussion. And uh, what it is, is what we're going to do is I'm going to have RVM basically say, hey, I just entered a project directory. Is the, you know, is there a gem file? Yes. Okay. looks like we're using bundlers. So basically what it's going to do is bundler is going to have its own special binary path, the bin directory, right? I'm going to add that to the beginning of path and the beginning of gem path, and that's where... Um, everything will be uh, preloaded. Now, the only bundler change that they need to make is to have bundler respect loading of uh, from gem path instead of only respecting gem home like it does now. So, in other words, full Ruby gems uh, support. So, loading can come from anywhere in the gem path, whereas installing only goes to gem home. And also, their special bin directory so that they can. Um, inject loading of bundler into their binaries in this special bin directory but not interfere with ruby gems proper and what that'll accomplish is uh, people will be able to use bundler and have it respect all of their environment and not have to type b e bundle exec anything like that in front of their um, commands which is uh, frankly it's an abomination it goes against everything that RVM stands for with cleaning up and keeping a central uh, unified API for everything with RVM you know you don't have to type Mac Ruby J Ruby you know um, Iron Ruby you don't have to type all these different binary names you simply you know say specify which one you want to use and then you type Ruby gem IRB it's all the same it's it's kept you know I had to go through flaming hoops to get it that way but not you know once it was that way then everybody else benefits. They have this same workflow no matter which Ruby they're using. I want to come back to the unified thing in a second, but before that, there's sort of two ways that Bundler uh, has these like binary stubs and wrappers, right? So we're talking, in this case, this is about the bin stubs feature of Bundler, not the wrapped up special Ruby bin stubs thing that RVM has, uh, right? And what is that used for? I've never actually seen anybody use that feature. I noticed it was there one time where you can sort of generate a Ruby with its own special name, but I, I haven't actually seen anyone use that. So what, what was the impetus for that and how's it good for? what's it good for? Well, the, 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 that's something completely different than the idea of bin stubs with yeah. uh, those. But what you, can, you can actually name your Rubies anything you want. You can alias them, um, which basically records into an alias file that the... When you alias uh, a Ruby, you basically it allows you to like say alias you know one nine and then to one nine two or patch level two eighty or whatever, and then you could say just from then on anywhere you would put a Ruby string specifier in RVM's command line, you can literally just type one nine or something short and convenient for you. <clears throat> and then there's also a bin. Uh, there's also a uh, wrappers 
concept where you can generate a wrapper for a Ruby and a command. Uh, so using this wrappers feature, you could actually say, for example, um, Engineer at Heroku, they have their own gems. And it'd be nice to be able to use those gems anywhere in, anywhere in your system without having to worry about switching to the gems that you installed them in to use and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Well, you can use the <clears throat> wrapper feature in order to wrap those uh, CLI tools and peg them into... And what it does is it pegs the environment to whatever environment they're installed in. So you can actually... in the, uh, then it, it, Since you're using RVM, the RVM bin directory gets into your path, and you can now type Heroku, EY, you know, Heroku deploy or whatever it is, EY deploy, all those things. And anywhere in your system, no matter what Ruby or gem set you're using, and it works as expected. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, the unified approach thing definitely helps when getting people acquainted with, you know, or just in general, not having to remember how to do things 12 different ways is really nice. But sometimes, uh, you know, things, since you're sort of the gateway into Ruby, you have to know a lot about a lot of things. Like you said, you sort of uh, went through a ton of effort to make this happen. And sometimes there's a little bit of, you know, back and forth, like what just happened over the last couple of days with the nail gun situation that I talked to you about. So, uh, Michael, if everybody doesn't, who isn't obsessively using JRuby and paying attention to RVM's like head, uh, Michael added a thing that starts JRuby with Nailgun. So when you do that, you know, type Ruby to start JRuby, you get Nailgun, and Nailgun can change the way your application works. So usually, it's faster, but sometimes it breaks and sometimes it's slower. So, how do you keep on top of? 12 different versions of Ruby and, you know, their patch levels, do you sort of take a more of a pull approach and assume that people will just, you know, say, hey, Wayne, this is broken, or do you actively pay attention to all these different projects? How does that sort of Uh, work out? So I do not actively pay attention to all the projects because when I change something in RVM, I will know within five minutes. (laughs) No, no, I'm serious. I guarantee I I will know within five minutes whether it broke anything. That's awesome and terrible. So... It, well, it is. So basically, anytime I make a change, I just I literally make sure I'm just waiting around for the next half an hour. And if there's if there's if, if anything broke for anybody, uh, it, I can fix it right away. And because I know exactly what it was. And yeah, I, I it's so easy to change things that way and get because I get feedback, and, and that feedback is absolutely priceless. It's like having an army of QA. I checked it out, and uh, the RVM website and the BDSM website between the two of them. Uh, they're serving that, that just for the website, like documentation and everything like that. Uh, it's serving well over, I think it was like two million requests a month. It's um, amazing, that, you know. And then you add into that all the downloads and stuff like that. It's like wow, that's awesome. So, but but yeah. So what happens is I I, I change I, I I usually I don't really just I don't anymore change things just to change them. <laughs> um, so I will change. I will change things to refactor to clean up the code base. However, as far as like adding new features, I really at this point only do that if there's a user who says, "Hey, you know, d- does it do this? Can it do this?" And I, if it sounds like a good suggestion, sounds like a useful feature, it has a use case, I will just add it and uh, push it, and then have them test it. They test it; it'll be good or bad, and I'll fix it real quick. And then once they've got it and tested working. You know, I'll just wait and see if anybody else, you know, screams or squeals. And if, if it all looks good, then I'll um, push a push a release out either that same day or the next day or whatever. Switch gears for a minute. Talk to us about BDSM. 
Yeah, BDSM is uh, originally it was the Bash deployment and server manager, and because it w- that's actually what I built it for originally was to manage all all of my uh, various systems. I, I was managing like eighty two or more uh, servers for different people, and you know I, I, I wanted something that would keep them all the same. They were all among many different operating systems. Uh, ranging in age from anywhere from like, oh my god, why is this thing still chugging along to woohoo, it's Arch Linux the latest and greatest <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff so yeah, so originally it was meant for uh, setting up and deploying uh, applications on servers and managing that and then I started uh, thinking and dealing with more, as a systems administrator I had literally an accumulation of random scripts and things that just kind of started collecting on all the systems and and I would go and I'd need one I'd need a script and I'd be like oh crap where is which system okay okay oh uh, this this friend of mine had it for his systems and okay I'm going to go to his one of his servers alright now where did I store that script um let's do which oh no it's not there crap I know it's on here so you know trying to figure out where it is and and not only that, but then you also have the issue of revision control and all this other stuff of these scripts, right? So it became a little bit painful for that. And here I had this great little system, uh, this BDSM, and I had this fledgling modules concept in it. And now this was like a year and a half or so ago. I started adding into it the concept of... Uh, modules and loadable modules and extensions and so let me briefly give you a rundown of what those really are uh so it changed from this you know server setup and deployment fr- uh, script into a full-fledged system level scripting framework you can actually now put bdsm in the shebang line and start using its modules and extensions inside of BDS inside of your scripts, which gives you nice things like stack traces where you, that print out such that it, based on your editor setting, you can, you know, if, you, if you're as long as your terminal supports it, you can command click on the line and it brings you opens up to that source line and file, and um, lots of other stack tracing and, and application tracing and debugging like goodies as well as a lot of um, DSL constructs like instead of having to remember the bracket bracket you know, dash, s, you know, file name, or and, and, this kind of stuff, you can, you can literally do if space file underscore exists, and then the file name, or the path to the file with the file name, if space file is executable, you know, there's all kinds of DSL methods that are provided by the modules, the core modules, and the file system modules, now by default. And using these, these modules, these D, so the modules can, are contain basically namespaced sets of functions for doing different things. Like there's a file system, a system, a user, a logging trace, uh, all kinds of different modules. And so they're basically like equivalent to, in Ruby, the standard library. So that they're along the same idea as like the Ruby standard library, but for like shell scripting. Yeah, like active support is sort of almost what it sounds like. Just like these are all useful things that you might like to use. Something like that, yeah. It it, it, it does two things. It extends the features of shell scripting so that you get very clean uh, looking shell scripts, and also makes them gives them all these enhanced features. Like yeah, sure, the active support concept. 
and also there's a lot of extra error checking. So if you use the DSL functions, uh, they literally any and every error situation that I could think of when I'm writing those functions, I account for in them. And if there is an error scenario in them, I will I have it spit out a, a backtrace as well as the exact message of so if it's clear that it's a coding error. Like you say, if file exists, then blah, blah, blah. Well, clearly you didn't specify the file. Well, it'll actually spit back a stack trace showing you where, how it got to there. So you can see what line of your code was calling if file exists. And you can all, it'll say, uh, error, you didn't specify the file name to this function or something like that, right? So it gives you a lot of sanity checks and helpful stuff when you're scripting in Shell. Now, using that as a basis... The, extend, the BDSM extensions are basically a whole other level of nicety. Uh, extensions are to be thought of as namespaced sets of actions, and actions are basically either shell functions or scripts. So if you have like scripts to manage your, uh, let's say, uh, Redis, for example, you, know, you probably have a script to install Redis on, on a server, a script to... Uh, start it, stop it, maybe uh, check the status of it, that kind of stuff. So so what you would do is you would actually write a Redis extension. And in the Redis extension, basically you have an actions directory, and inside of that actions directory you can have as many subdirector, nested subdirectories as you want. And in each one of them you can either put executable script files or a .actions file which lists a... Uh, you know how then how a command line action like uh, say BDSM Redis package install. So I'll have a Redis the the, the Redis extension will be a directory Redis slash actions slash package slash say I do the executable script way it'll be the uh, the script there called install. And then uh, BDSM once the extension is installed it will just as long as it's executable in that directory it will just call that that script file, the install. And that, that install script can be any language as long as it's an executable script file. So you can write it in compiled C, you can write it in uh, Python, Perl, Ruby, Shell. Now, it, it, BDSM, if you have a sh if you do write your stuff in Shell, then you have the edit bonus of all of the standard modules that BDSM provides. Uh, however, you're not restricted to do that. And so then what it does is BDSM... You encapsulate your sets of scripts, your namespace sets of scripts in extensions. So you can have one for, like, say, Redis. You can have one for deploying, which these are actually examples that I have. One for, say, uh, Unicorn to control it. And then you install BDSM, you just say BDSM, and then the extension name package install for, like, Redis. Like, so BDSM, Redis package install installs Redis, BDSM Redis service start, stop, restart, that kind of stuff it does start, stop, restart on Redis. Uh, and those are implemented as uh, system-level shell scripts or Ruby scripts or whatever you want. And uh, one of the things, if you go to RVM's website, you have uh, slash deployment slash best dash practices. And I need to update that with a new uh, API, but... Essentially, that details how you would go about deploying, say, Redmine as an example application. And the idea is that you can use BDSM to bootstrap your application stack and control everything application-related on the system. And then 
separate from like package manager and everything like this like that. So what this affords me is, if you recall, with RVM we have this isolated system where we can specify the environment, which is like the Ruby and the gem set and the list of gems and that kind of stuff. And so for your application, that becomes the application's environment. Well, this is taking that one step further to the entire application's environment and system. So given any operating, any Linux-type operating system or BSD, you can, including OSX, you can install BDSM as root and then start managing your application stacks with BDSM. As well as all of your, uh, you know, writing extensions for uh, your sc- your sets of scripts and stuff like that. So it, there's just so many things that you can do with it. It's ridiculous. So this is sort of part um, Chef, part Homebrew, part OMIZ shell for Bash. Uh, yeah. So it's not just Bash though. It's it's more of a system level framework. Um, it happens to be written in Bash at the moment, but. Uh, so the idea, the, the fundamental idea that you can think of is, and the reason why I, I made it the way I did is, so I, I was trying to extend the RVM concept to my entire application stack. Since I had so many different servers that I was helping people manage, then they were on all kinds of different operating systems while trying to account for differences in package managers and package versions and names on them and everything just became a living hellish nightmare for me. So instead of doing that, what I do is... We have some base libraries that, you know, we have the system, we have the system and the systems package manager install and manage the system itself. And then each application between BDSM and RVM, we manage the entire application stack specifically using those two tools. And it's cross-system uh, the same. It's, it's, it's also uh, completely isolated inside of itself, just like RVM is. Where are you installing these two? What, uh, what sort of paths? So for BDSM, you can do user or root installs. Um, I only have one person doing user installs, so it's not heavily tested. Uh, it's an enterprise-type shop where they have the full barrier between sysadmins and developers, and developers only can get in as users and stuff like that. So... You know, they are doing that, so it does work that way. But uh, the, the way I have it done on all other systems is as uh, it's installed as root, BDSM is, and then uh, the every application gets its own system user and uh, its own RVM install. The only user thing tripped me up the first time I ever used BDSM. Now I have I have a server that I've been deploying two applications to with it, and it's been awesome. But one of them is called Deployer as far as BDSM goes, because I didn't realize that that was the way that it worked. And I really like the way that it works, uh, but just a hilarious. I'd always, I've been meaning to move it over to a real name, and I haven't gotten around to it yet, because it confuses me every time I try to configure that particular application. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but It works well. It's awesome. Um, it's, it's so much simpler than Capistrano was to manage everything. One of them is a, is a Sinatra app and one's a Rails app and one's using MongoDB and one's using Postgres. And so like all that kind of stuff is way easier to manage so far. So it's been, uh, I'll be reading that best practices page. That's exactly the plan. Um, is that so that, so for, um, application developers like web application developers or, uh, people like that, the idea is that you need to manage your stack, your, your application stack specifically, and, and you want to be able, in my opinion, at least the way I do things is, I want to be able to go on my laptop, on my desktop, on my uh, CI server, my staging server, my production server, all of these, right, the QA, and I want to have them identical. I don't really give a whether it's on 
you know, <laughs> OS X or this one's on CentOS or this one's on Arch Linux or, you know, this one's on Redshift. I mean, ha- um, basically, <laughs> I really don't want to care. I freak. I really don't want to care. I want it to work the same on all of them. And also, if it's set up and run and works the same on all of them, that also enables me to kind of test exactly that application stack um, as I go from uh, development to QA to CI and staging, right, all the way to production. If it's identical, the entire application stack the whole way, uh, then, you know, you're more confident that it's going to work the same as you bring it on. You run into any problems supporting cross-platform scripts like this? Uh, Okay, so basically supporting cross-platform scripts is a living nightmare and but the nice thing is if you use the BDSM underlying core DSL functions to write everything then those I've been ensuring when I write them uh, that they're cross-platform as far as cross like you know star next distributions and so as long as you're using them and when you're scripting then you don't automatically have these extensions and scripts that work correctly no matter whether you're deploying to Fedora or you know CentOS or Debian or any of those things. Not sure if I answered the question, but Oh absolutely, yeah. Just it seems like a tall order, you know, homebrew is OS ten only, right? Yes. So, you know, stretching across any Star Nix platform just seems infinitely more hard. Oh it is. And, the, and I'm just tackling it one piece at a time um, as I find and need new uh, – so there's, there's there's two big comp – so there's like core um, modules. There's like base level modules like file system and user and you know they're basically dealing with one single small concept. But then there's also complex or compound modules and two examples of that are package and service. So the package module encapsulates the idea of uh, packaging, right? Uh, and the, the service module encapsulates the idea of services, things you run on a system, start, stop, restart, you know, status, that kind of stuff. And as I need new things for applications, like, okay, I need, I need Redis, I need Elasticsearch, I need Postgres, whatever... The, you know, I'll sit down and I'll write an extension I'll, and I'll and I'll make it uh, test it out, make it sure that the extension is using the core modules and uh, package module and service module, so that I get all the maximum benefits of a generalized framework for package managing, for service managing, and and in doing that, you've got a common command line interface for all these different services, right? Actually, that is exactly correct. And that's another uh, thing that I. I'm not stressing enough, is also it's a common command line interface to it. So, yes, so if you're using the service module, it beca- you know your, all your commands can be managed based on, like, BDSM, your extension name, service, start, stop, restart, status, etc. Same similarly for package, install, uninstall, update, whatever. And what's nice about this is it's it's a common command line interface to and you, and you can make scripts that do this or what's even neater is it's BDSM is a is a single systems scripting framework really that's 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 its focus that's it's I'm not trying to conquer um, anything broader than a single system scope 
with this framework. So the idea, however, is with this framework and its extensions, you are able to provide a very succinct uh, common command line interface to your extensions to be able to control and update and install your entire system. And then you can now use distributed tools such as uh, Puppet, Chef, whatever you're going to use, SSH in parallel from a shell script, um, to call out to all your servers and services and do all the logic of managing what should be done on each one of them. And they will say, okay, BDSM, blah, 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 BDSM, blah, 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 BDSM, blah, blah, blah. And the idea is that you're isolating so that BDSM worries and manages specific aspects of the uh, single systems. And then your chef or puppet, whatever you're using, will manage your overall infrastructure and coordinate it by – and then also all of your recipes and stuff like that for – um, chef become much simpler because you're literally calling out to the BDSM command line interface. That's one p- issue I've always had with Chef and Puppet is, you know, trying to manage system level things in in these in Ruby and in these scripts has been for me a nightmare uh, as it's it's just so unnatural. It just doesn't make sense to me. Whereas in shell scripting. What you're doing is you're just stringing together commands and do with with a little bit of logic around them, and piping them to their inputs and outputs together to make you know manage your system. And every single binary on your system is a command available in natively inside of your shell script. So it just makes a lot more sense to be doing system level management inside of shell scripts. Now, another thing that I'm trying to do with BDSM is through these DSLs and everything, I'm trying to clean up shell scripting, show that it could be very clean, readable, and debuggable. Whereas if you look, just go SSH into your favorite Linux distro and look into the, through the ETC directory at the shell scripts in there, and basically it'll make you want to claw your eyes out. And <laughs> it's just, Do you provide man support for these? For which? For any of your scripts, you have like a default documentation, yeah, man uh, well, files or there's anything? There's a you know, the BDSM help feature for now. However, uh, we have currently planned a uh, providing like hooks into man pages for BDSM extensions and everything itself right now. Very cool. You know, we're talking about being able to stitch these together. You know, when I, I got into uh, – Web development was back in the day, ESP Classic, and you know, on the Windows platform. It used to, I couldn't do anything that didn't involve a right-click property pane somewhere, you know. And having gotten into Ruby and Rails and the uh, the command line interface, I just could never go back to something that I couldn't just stitch together something that I wanted to do in a script, you know. Yes, I do know. It's, it's, it's that's exactly it. It's insanely powerful and flexible and nerd on. <laughs> so yeah, it's go ahead. I was just going to say, so I, the, uh, there's a, actually sort of two related things about setting all this up. So obviously, if you want to have one system control your entire application stack and all these things, you uh, installing BDSM, I mean, I did it, so I sort of know. But if you want to talk about how relatively easy it is to actually get started and how much work do you actually have to do to get a new blank, uh, you know, I spin up a new VPS, how long is it until I'm deploying my code? Um, and then uh, a sort of little follow-up question about the whole get pipe to sh install method that people have been complaining about a little bit. So I guess, yeah, so first thing, how, how quickly is it to get a new VPS actually set up with all this stuff to get going? 
Depends on the size and the comp computation power of the VPS. Um, I have been focusing on the compile and, and install for the specific system. This allows me to hit a broader range of systems out of the gate without having to worry about um, whether or not what I built would be compatible and, and if, the d d d d if the dependent libraries or the dependency libraries like, you know, Nginx, okay, well, that requires PCRE and Zlib and OpenSSL and, oh, I'm using this, this extra patch to it, so I need this other, you know, library on my system. So, um, so I'm, I'm, all of the extensions that I've written so far take on a um, compiling by default approach. Now, you can write extensions that don't do that. And there actually is one extension that doesn't do that. For example, I think it's uh, MongoDB, if I remember correctly. It's basically download the uh, executable for your platform, extract and uh, copy the files in the proper locations, and you're done. Uh, so, you know, it's possible to do anything you want with that. Now, that said, uh, on an RVM test server that I have, it's not a particularly beefy server, but it's got, you know, like 2 gigs of RAM and... I don't know how much processing power, but it, within, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, I have a Redmine instance deployed. And most of that time is literally just waiting for the compiling on it. Um, <laughs> so if you use Gen 2, you'll be right at home. As an arch person, I have to crack jokes at Gen 2 all the time. <laughs> I'm actually a fan of both Arch and Gentoo, so I don't so know. similar. It's like it's like Ruby Python is what it what it reminds me of. They're like almost identical and there's no reason the two should hate each other, but they well, seem like, like they do. It's something. even it's even more fundamental than that. It's like uh Rubinius and J Ruby. Yeah. So to the second piece, I guess, of that poorly worded question from earlier. So RVM uh definitely has the ability to install through like curl this shell script and pipe it to SH. Uh, POW does this, NPM does this, and I see complaints on the Twitters all the time about how this is a terrible idea for installing software. Yeah, let me put it to you this way. <laughs> it's a shell script. Shell, your shells are capable of reading streams of files, whether it be from uh, curling, whether it be from catting, whether it be from reading a file and executing those files in there. So this is literally quite equivalent to downloading the file, making it executable, and doing dot slash install. There is no difference. Now, there was there was a possibility for a man in the middle attack, which is why I bought the SSL cert for RVM, thanks to the donations. And um, so then I set up the SSL and then had lots of lovely little nightmares with CA certificates not being updated on <laughs> people's systems. Whee! Hold on. Yeah. Tapping my vein. Hold on. So, um, yeah, but – so that preempts the man in the middle thing. But and then, you know, if they're, if they're still going to complain, then they're just quite literally being pompous jackasses. And the reason for that is you shouldn't be running anything on your system that you – don't trust for any any number of reasons, and so if you have a problem with that, download the script, read the code, see exactly what it does. Oh my God, what a concept! Wow, <laughs> you just blew my mind. <laughs> so, anyways, I, I don't I totally know what else agree. to say about that. It's like, why? You know, go ahead, complain. You know, it's like you're just showing how much of an ass you are, really. 
So, yeah. Wayne, how long does it take you to bootstrap your own personal setup? So, Lion comes out, you want to install from scratch. How much of your own setup do you have automated? Uh, I'm a very bad monkey as far as that's concerned. I rsync over my project directory, and then I basically just do the uh, <clears throat> curl and cat and pipe uh, and smoke it. Um, RVM and BDSM <laughs> installs, and and then I just take it from there. I, I basically in will install uh, you know the rubies as I can. I'll literally open up like ten shells and ten different terminals and install you know as as many as I can in parallel. Usually I have to install like one eight or something first and then do all of the rest. And for BDSM. I have that down to a little bit more of a science. I could actually, at the, this point in time, I could script the whole thing. Just open up a file, make it shebang line, you know, user local bin BDSM, and then just start calling, you know, commands in there, and or just have a normal shell script where you do uh, BDSM nginx package install, BDSM Redis package install, or there's actually an, a new thing that I just introduced, which is an alternative syntax to that, and in literally one command, you can have it install all of your package things. It's kind of fun to use too. Um, but basically, what it there's a you can do like you know, for example, BDSM uh, zlib comma pcre comma openssl dot nginx comma redis space package install. And what that will actually do is that will, uh, in parallel, at the same time, uh, install uh, what did I say? Zlib, PCRE, and, and OpenSSL. And then as soon as all three of those finish, then it will launch an install of Nginx and Redis in parallel. Ah. Uh. And and the reason for doing that, well, hopefully it's obvious, is because before you can build Nginx, you need those dependency libraries to be built. So I've got this compact command line syntax that I introduced today that allows you to quickly in one line install a dependency tree. And it also respects the number of CPUs on your system. So if you have two CPUs, it will only... So in my example, let's say you have two cores or two CPUs, Using my example of uh, PCRE, Zlib, and OpenSSL as the first set in sequence, it will install uh, Zlib and PCRE, and then it won't continue to OpenSSL until one of the two of those finish. And then That's awesome. once, and then once all all three in in the set of parallels finish, then it will install a. Uh, you know, Nginx and OpenSSL. And so, like, on my, on the RVM's uh, test, this main test uh, workbench that engineer donated, it's a 24-core Mac Pro. And so on that one, I can make a massive string and watch the, everything light up, and it's, it's grab some popcorn, and it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it seriously, it gives me the biggest nerd on ever, which keeps me, you know, building more and more packages so I can see it. Anyways... Another RVM question for you. So any way to have it automatically create a gem set that it hasn't seen before when I okay. click into uh, it? In, in the documentation, if you actually read it, or in the examples slash RVMRC, there is an RVM uh, gem set create 
unuse or something like that. There's there's actually a flag for dash it. dash create is the flag. Okay, so from the command line, you can say dash dash create and it will create it, or right. you can make it so that anytime it sees the gem set, it, it doesn't exist yet, it will That's automatically create it. That you can put in your .rvmrc file in your user home directory or your etc rvmrc file. And it's uh, you're gonna have to look in the documentation or in examples slash rvmrc, but it's something like uh, rvm gem set create flag or something like that. Awesome. That's pretty much the first thing I do on every project is make an rvmrc with a gem set as the name of the project and <laughs> shove it in Git. I actually do that as well. I generate when I create a new project, the first thing I do is I, I make the directory go to it and I do rvm space. You know, dash dash rvmrc, dash space dash dash create space. Uh, I don't know, uh, one point nine point two at uh, my project name, and that that'll generate the dot rvmrc. I do get init, get add dot rvmrc, and then I continue. <laughs> so while we have you here, uh, I know this is in the rvm best practices website, but uh, let's get it straight from the horse's mouth. RVMRCs, always check them into your repositories uh, and have a project gem set with the same name as your project, right? Yeah, completely correct. If you're, if you, the RVMRC is the bond, is the specification of this is the project's environment. When you're in this project, when you're running this project, it should be in this environment by default. So that when you go into the project, whether it's five months down the road, whether whatever, whether you, you know, you oh, crap, I lost my system, and I just cloned the repo, CD into it, RVM sets up your environment, and everything's kosher, and you get going. And all additionally, keep in mind, the RVMRC file is actually a shell script. So it's not just setting the RVM uh, Ruby string and then environment ID, which is the Ruby string at gemset name. It's more than that. It's, it, it, you should do in the RVMRC with proper error handling. Anything that you need to do to set up this application's environment to be ready to work on it or run it. You know, when I see anybody complaining about RVM or Bundler on Twitter, I just want to remind them where we've come since 2005. <laughs> Go on to the days where it was just like um, a picture puzzle game of dependencies trying to get a, a Rails project to run back then. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Now, <laughs> thanks for those memories. So basically, um, what that'll, uh, yeah. So it's a, con- it's basically a contract between all all developers on that application. And since it's a shell script, you can actually put checks in there that will do things like check the Git branch, and um, based on the Git branch. So if I'm on production, then it's we're using this Ruby. But for um, the master branch or development branch, then um, you would you know, use this environment identifier instead because we're to bet it. So we were on one eight. That's production. But if the Git branch is uh, development or master, then we want to be on one nine because we're working on upgrading on the master branch or something like that. That is the proper oh, that's way. That's awesome. Or if you got a special Ruby for Heroku, you know that's different from your your local too. That's yes, cool. that is the proper way to be using your RVMRCs. And if you're a bundler user, then if you look in the generated RVMRC file towards the bottom, what you will notice is that it has a examples of uh, what I okay. So let me back up. It has examples down there. What I actually do is I if I'm using bundler on a project, I will have the top of the the very top selects the environment ID. The middle is what is our, this is already in there generated. It, the middle loads that environment and then down below 
I use a .gems file with RVM gem sets, and what I do is RVM gem set it'll RVM gem set import .gems. In that file, I have just one word: bundler. Or you could do bundler space dash v one dot zero dot fifteen whatever. And what that does is when I see it into the directory, not only does it load the RVM environment, it makes sure that bundler is and the proper version is installed in that gem set. Taking that further, a little bit down more in the generated file, you can actually see that it has a, you know, if, bun- if bundler is found, then call bundle when you CD in there so that it also bundles for you. Now, that's optional, but... So, yeah, so that, that's, that's RVMRC files and proper usage of them. Cool. We know you had a hard stop at five, so one last question before we let you go. Um, when you're not hacking on RVM or BDSM, what open source project out there has you excited that you want to tell the world about? And by world, I mean like our 200 users, or listeners. 200 listeners. <laughs> ah, 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 ah. So basically, the I'm actually currently working on a specification for a new open source project which does not have a name yet. I am working on this with Michael. And the idea is that it is this system which allows you to write plugins for it for processing arbitrary um, data streams or uh, which have the idea of like identities and relationships. and like So in other words, identities and interactions between identities. And it's a generic framework for this kind of thing. So applications for it could be like um, monitoring systems, could have a plugin which basically um, maps this data and calculates and computes relationships on uh, aggregated monitoring things that come into it. Or um, you could actually do uh, neat things like business metrics, like if you can uh, pull in metrics from your ticketing system, pull in metrics from your sales department, pull in metrics from your Nagios as well at the same time, pull in um, any and all kinds of different metrics, and basically you write plugins which know how to parse these metrics into the format required by the system. And then what happens is when it's in the system, the system itself has a bunch of uh, default um, it, it has a, a graph database inside of it, as well as a data, uh, document data store, as well as a uh, relational data store, all three of which work together so that basically the entry into the system is the document data store, and that's where we, all of the raw information is stored. And then the plugins are expected to be, have uh, processors written in them, which extract that and store the load, the uh, extract data into the, the uh, IDR, the relationship uh, the graph database, and then inside of the graph database, uh, there's the, your processor will look at that and extract statistics. The system will actually extract statistics based on what it sees in the giant graph relationship database and store them into the tables. And then what you can do is you can actually use these things for alerting, uh, for reporting, like business uh, reporting and, and reflecting on your business and determining directions and stuff like that. So that, that's one kind of thing I'm looking at and thinking about. And as well, there's something called event stream processing and and workflow engines and combining the two of those together and putting them on top of this system as well will end up with this extremely flexible system. Uh, it's it's going to be g- generic, and the plugins are what actually are uh, business-specific or application-specific, and the applications of this are... I've just seen this need in so many different areas um, 
Uh, could you do social network activity streams, for instance? That is exactly correct. Yes, you could. Uh, you could. You could do. Uh, let's say you want to have a BDSM relationship dating site, and you. <laughs> I don't know. Theoretically. Theoretically. Um, the, the canonical example is like if you know, you know, everybody uses Twitter as a canonical example. Well, the you know, you've, the idea is that you you would write a Twitter processor which is able to you know import Twitter uh, re- relationships. Like so, you know, you, you have these Twitter IDs, and then you have different kind of interaction types between these IDs, like follow or retweet or mention, right, and that kind of stuff. And then put, put that in the system, and then it'll compute based on the data types. Uh, that are labeled on the uh, in the graph database. There are processors which will is- extract statistical information and store those into relational uh, database as statistics uh, storage, and which can be used for reporting and extracting and whatever the heck you want to do, really. Very interesting. Yeah, I've seen that that pattern a lot. It seems to be kind of the uh, the pattern behind a lot of web applications and and even business applications like you mentioned now. Yep. Well, Wayne, surely appreciate it taking the time to tell us about RVM and BDSM. And, uh, look forward to this yet unnamed project. Cool. Yeah, thanks a lot, Wayne. Cool. <laughs> All right, guys.